0: Welcome to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to this week's episode of Common Voice. You might be confused because I've been calling it Common Talk for the last three episodes. Um, turns out it's not called Common Talk, the, the podcast for the peasantry. It's Common Voice, the podcast for the College of Public Health at Temple University. Um, my name is Jamie Riley. I'm a professor in communication sciences and disorders here. I'm a speech pathologist and neuroscience by tra- by training, not a public health scientist. I know nothing about public health. I eat Doritos and don't exercise and still do all the things you're not supposed to do. Uh, so, but I have an expert, a uh, fantastic expert in public health today. Uh, Dr. Jenny Stallo, nice to meet you, and nice to have you here. Thank you. Nice
1: to be here. And I will just add, we too eat Doritos and don't
0: exercise. Oh, so you are in
1: good company.
0: Oh, I have sort of had this idea that 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 you, as a discipline, were like going to the dentist when you when we when we get scolded, and we do all these things we know we're not supposed to do and have cognitive dissonance about it.
1: I have to say, our facade is working. That's great to hear. Oh. I'm glad oh. that you are just assuming we're in tip-top shape. That's really <laughs> good to know, but um, I just would like to pause and think, you know, those who cannot do, teach. So, oh, that's a good... it's not about being perfect. It's about trying to find balance.
0: But oh, there are a, a bunch of sub-
1: subspecialties.
0: So, uh, well, so that is good because so we're going to get into one of your articles that I read that I really liked about uh, COVID and scare tactics and public health. Um, we're going to get into that later um, because it's related to something you just said about this idea of like people having a perception about public health scientists and it being, you know, I don't know, the tactics in using this sort of Machiavellian, the end justifies the means. If we scare people into doing it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is that the way we should be doing it? Um, all right, so I'll put pause on that and we'll come and revisit that. Cool. But first, I want I want we have a lot of listeners who are students in the college and sort of people who are are choosing to go in the path of the MPH and, and to become public health scientists. And I thought that it'd be really nice to hear a little bit about your path, how you how you got there and what you're studying.
1: Sure. So I will <laughs> I will just say most of us in public health stumble into it. So if you are just finding out what public health is because of COVID or have never taken a public health class before, but find something interesting, try it. Public health is so vast. It's just a lens for seeing the world. And so I am not unique in that I stumbled upon public health. I started in nursing and while nursing is fantastic, and I will forever be grateful for the army of nurses out there, I loved the clinical side, but it wasn't for me. It was more about populations for me. Mm-hmm. So then I took a sharp left turn into medical anthropology. Of course, that was a little too far in a more philosophical direction, but it got me interested in global health and intersectionality and the social determinants of health and really understanding historical trauma and drivers of behaviors. But I still wanted more of a problem-solving approach to health, Mm -hmm. and that's what public health is for me. It's an opportunity to look at a health problem as not blaming people, but looking at it in a holistic way of what are some really creative, innovative ways that we can assess what's going on and move forward with changing times, changing populations, changing needs? Um, so I've, I like the more, I would say the less traditional public health field. So I do a lot with, um, sexual practices, piercings, tattoos, emerging infectious diseases, Zika, Ebola, dengue, chikungunya, monkeypox, mm-hmm. oh, I could go forever, um, health communications, I work with the World Health Organization, I've worked with a lot of organizations, but um, public health is the coolest thing in the world, it just yeah. really is, and it mm-hmm. has a home for everyone.
0: Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great answer. So one of the things I guess I was, I was thinking about when you were talking about that would be, I when I took medical anthropology in college, so I was an anthropology major as an undergrad. But that was one of the most fascinating classes I ever took, just because of, I mean, that we don't require that of doctors is crazy, right? This this idea that like, you know, some people don't like to go to hospitals because it's the tradition that they don't go into places where a person has died, right? And if you don't know that and you're like well, why aren't these people going to a hospital (laughs) you know i I don't i don't yeah so it just seems so fundamental um yeah i agree
1: completely
0: to systems um and then what i was going to ask you is this idea of like people coming to public health like you know on like from these different prongs right or different perspectives right so you have the medical anthropology perspective of like how people choose to make health how people view disease and pathogens and their bodies in terms of their culture and then you have other people who are really into the pathogens themselves microbiologists but then you have like data scientists right like that are like really really into numbers and sort of just like could be agnostic to the health problem entirely and like just plotting points and being like you know like the i guess the i don't know what's the metaphor like the cholera pump in in london right like you plot all these points and you're like ah Cholera is happening right there, but like, you know, you didn't know that much about cholera, but you know, people love data. So the variability in that, I guess, in coming to the decision of like becoming a public health practitioner and how you did it in a being a a really neat angle, uh, which I think we're going to talk about next would be this idea of tropical health, because people up here in Philly really don't know a whole lot about that. But you went to Tulane, and that is like, one of the places in the world for studying, you know, emerging pathogens and tropical health, the Zika and things like that. We don't think about a whole lot here. Good, um, We good. <laughs> I know. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like how that, you know, particularly, and so, and I think, you know, and we go way back, like all the way to last week when we met, but are <laughs> you, remind me, are you, did you spend your childhood in New Orleans as well? Like you are a New orleans right?
1: So I've been in New Orleans for about a decade. So not okay. born in New Orleans, but that uh-huh. was probably the longest I've ever lived somewhere was in New Orleans, which is kind of okay. crazy. I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm a very uh, mobile person, I've uh-huh. been hopping around the globe and, you know, life. But of all the places, I guess New Orleans is the most home base I've had. Yeah. But tropical medicine, I love tropical medicine, tropical diseases because they're so rich in history.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: going back to medical anthropology, I always ask my students, "What's medicine? You're telling people to take medicine. Is chicken noodle soup medicine? Mm-hmm. Why not? It makes you feel good. Yeah. You eat it when you're sick. Uh-huh. Tell me that Vicks VapoRub is not medicine." Mm -hmm. put on your chest heals everything right Mm -hmm. everyone has these ideas and their notions and I think tropical medicine often gets this exotic lens because we think of it as someone else's problem Uh that's one of the reasons why I love it because it's not the case at all absolutely not the case at all I teach um, one of my favorite classes I teach here at temple is disease prevention and control and it's a gnarly class i'll be honest i show yep. worms uh-huh. and all these different types of bugs and intestinal yeah. parasites and it's so fun but also an article about people getting hookworm every year on the jersey shore yeah and the fact that with global warming and climate change we're seeing neglected tropical diseases and tropical medicine focused approaches creeping up closer and closer i mean. Philadelphia has one of the richest histories for yellow fever in the Mm -hmm. country. That's one of the reasons why we were settled here and the declaration Mm -hmm. signed here and a lot of the things that we still talk about are based in malaria and Mm -hmm. yellow fever. So in our lifetime, we're going to see more exposure to tropical medicine. Is
0: that because of of climate change and warming? So I guess, you know, Maybe you could clarify for me what, what exactly is you know falls under tropical uh, under tropical medicine. Is it sort of like hot weather hot weather emerging pathogens? Is that what I don't know? Like I'm totally yeah. ignorant to this, so you can you, tell me to. These are right, the yeah. <laughs>
1: questions. Are you kidding? This is awesome. So traditionally, tropical medicine is found in the tropics or what we call now the global south. Mm-hmm. But because it's such a hospitable environment for pathogens in animals to survive and thrive. So I'll give Mm -hmm. you an example. One health is a part of public health that I love and I think everyone should study because it's the intersection of people, animals and the environment. And when you have things like the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and Mm -hmm. global warming, the animals, even the mosquitoes have to go somewhere. And what they do is they come take humans. And so with the whole idea of deforestation, global warming, climate change, even following that mosquito, you'll see that as it gets warmer, the mosquitoes have more opportunity Mm -hmm. to survive and thrive in the South, et cetera, Mm -hmm. or the South of the US, for example. And so they're going to do that because it's natural for an animal to do. But also as we have more deforestation and more food insecurity, you're gonna have more spillover awesome documentary, but you're going to have more spillover from animals to people. So people Uh eat different types of animals and some of the best animals for incubating these diseases are bats, are birds, Mm -hmm. pigs. And so the more we are involved in food production, in changing environments and changing populations, the more exposure we're going to have to these animals. So emerging infectious diseases are definitely going to be reoccurring. Mm-hmm. and tropical diseases I think are just going to be called diseases in mm-hmm. another 20 years with the mm-hmm. with the changes in climate.
0: Yeah yeah well let's talk about that like how it relates to you know your training in New Orleans and specifically so you study tropical health in like a place that is you know really kind of the epicenter where a lot of a lot of these problems and societal problems happen so can you tell people a little bit about New Orleans and how you know The city itself, and and, you know, the confluence of lots of water and hot water and mosquitoes, and but also abject poverty in lots of places. Yeah. Um,
1: So New Orleans, everyone should go. It is, it's just so fun, but Mm -hmm. so nuanced in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. And I think that's really the heart of my answer to this: is you have a sinking city. That's been one of the major ports of the nation since the beginning of it, since before it was even the nation. And so you have a perfect storm of environmental decay, impacts of climate change, the hurricane that just happened, the hurricanes that happen every year. You also have the changing infrastructure. So we have gentrification. We have changing needs of populations. There are still areas that are just destroyed from Hurricane Katrina. mm mm-hmm. And so it's such a dividing economy, dividing inter- intersectionality of what is poverty during COVID.
0: Yeah. The
1: musicians,
0: there yeah. Were in the
1: food industry. And when you have a tourist-based city, it really changes the entire economic status profile, et cetera, of an entire city. Not having Mardi Gras, I know it sounds ridiculous for a lot of reasons, but that's a huge, huge economic, Aspect of the city. And without that, the debt just grows. So that's one component to it. The other component is New Orleans gets a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of heat and a lot of humidity. And with all of that comes a lot of really interesting diseases. So Chagas disease exists. West Nile disease exists. Um Dengue, Chikagunia Zika kind of sort of, but not so much. But it's a very different kind of atmosphere. So for example, I always tell my students this, in New Orleans, it's very common to have a boil water advisory, Mm -hmm. very common. There are issues with the pumps. If there's a storm, it changes the quality of water that you're allowed to drink or you should be drinking and it introduces pathogens into your system. And so it's very common to have a boil water advisory but we don't think here in the US, you have to still boil your water to have Mm -hmm. affordable or safe water. And it's really interesting because depending on where you are between the BP oil spill and climate change and hurricanes, boiling your water, but also extreme wealth, really great health infrastructures, a lot of really innovative ways of approaching health from uh, we're in this together mentality that I don't see in a lot of places. Coming together for COVID, that was a huge, huge win for New Orleans because mm-hmm. of this community identity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty, it's an interesting place. I'd love to set up almost like study abroad class where it's like, come to New Orleans with me for two weeks and see yeah. how. Oh the, yeah.
0: Whoop, sorry, my like Oh, you're okay. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that was very striking to me, I, had, I, I, you know, I went to college at Tulane as well, but that was a, a, a mid nineties, early nineties. And so, uh, after Katrina, I hadn't been back for, for a zillion years, but went back a few years ago to visit. And the thing that was really striking to me was how selectively they rebuilt. Um, so these areas um, that had been, uh, you know, pretty marginal when I was there were were it's just a, uh, are fully yuppified. and then parts of the city just sort of were just left. Devastated. Yeah. I mean, just the wealth disparity, I guess, in the comeback has just really been striking. And then the median home price there is just outrageous right now. Exactly. I mean, and how do you think that affects, I don't know, eat both like people getting into housing, but also health care and nutrition and all of those things that public health scientists consider. It's a lot.
1: It's a lot yeah. to consider and also something that is not just natural disaster based because I, I want listeners to think about it for COVID. How
0: mm-hmm. many
1: small businesses had to close as opposed to the larger ones? How many areas did, were there pop-up areas for support for COVID or weren't hit so hard? So this is relevant for any kind of health crisis. We see this where mm-hmm. we see it on a larger, more extreme kind of scale when it's such a devastation like Hurricane Katrina, but the problem is what data do you use for informing the healthcare system, for informing yeah. program planning and development mm. or health communication? Because there's still some places in Louisiana that don't have running water. Yeah. And there are places in Louisiana that were never reconstructed or rebuilt because it wasn't considered advantageous. Yeah. Or the economy for tourism
0: for yeah.
1: creating sustainable housing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so it also turns into once you start Putting money into certain places, you keep putting money into certain places.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of
1: times in public health, with these types of income based disparities, one of the first things that pop up are food, food security, access to fresh fruits and vegetables, et cetera. That's not unique to New Orleans, but it's mm-hmm. definitely really obvious in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it's really obvious with healthcare settings where are the urgent care clinics? Where are the actual hospitals? Mm-hmm. How much is an ambulance nowadays if you don't have insurance? What's the likelihood of you seeking health care mm-hmm. if no one in the healthcare care setting is able to treat you without stigma and bias? That's mm-hmm. another really big issue, because also how many people who are working in these cities that are getting gentrified by the second that are getting totally changed i mean i've been in philly for a month now and already so many people are telling me it's not like it used to be it's so many people coming in from new york and boston and it's so different it's changing but it creates these hot spots of incredible access and no access yeah when you're pulling data to figure out where things are the data is also going to tell the same story unless you take the time to actually do community engagement Uh uh-huh and that is a really big issue and hopefully something changing with public health, this generation of public health and beyond. It's not just relying on census data. It's yeah. not relying on development data. It's actually going to communities and saying, what do you need? What do you have that you like? How can we make this more equitable for you? Yeah.
0: So w- related to that very question about community engagement, I think you know around the the latest hurricane, it it, it it always baffles me. So they had you know this evacuation warning, and you hear people complaining like, "Why would people stay?" And and, and you know the thought of this of, of a ninety a ninety year old person alone, very low income, fixed income, can't afford to, doesn't have a car. <laughs> what are they gonna do, right? And so you know it's this whole whole thing of like. Yes, we have policies around, but you know, are uh, getting these services to the people who need them? I mean, you know, are the policymakers listening? Right. So, does FEMA and the state of Louisiana like are they set up for really these really marginalized communities and people who are vulnerable who can't evacuate? Like, are they getting better at listening to say public oh, health and?
1: Definitely, I will say honestly, I think a huge sigh of relief from this past hurricane has been how far we've come since Hurricane Katrina. Oh, good. Sincerely, Uh people were expecting eight weeks without power. I mean, there are still areas where trash hasn't been picked up, Mm -hmm. Um, but when it comes to why didn't you leave, that's such a privileged statement. And also- It really is. The years of PTSD that people have been going through, The PTSD during hurricane season is not a joke. It is Mm -hmm. not something I take lightly. And it's something you have to consider. You Mm -hmm. absolutely have to consider. And thinking about how do you evacuate? How do you pack up everything that's most important to you? And where are you going to go? Right. Where are you going to go? This was during Labor Day weekend where there were no hotels anywhere. Mm -hmm. Where are you gonna drive to? Who do you have in your social network that you can rely on? And also, it becomes a really interesting kind of look into who stays because it could be people who have to take care of family. Uh-huh. It could be people with a lot of pets. Uh-huh. It could be people who have a generator and they're mm-hmm. like, I'll be fine. And it's also people who maybe didn't get the notice. Relying on social media for all of our communication is not a good idea. But Every year, so the Medical Reserve Corps, if you're not a part of it and interested in response, there's one here in Philly and in
0: every city. It's awesome, yeah. It's
1: awesome, but there are hurricane trainings and evacuation trainings, and it's getting things down to, do we have all of our organizations on board? Do we have all of the routes that actually hit hotspots that people can get to and want to get to and trust? Mm -hmm. Where are you likely to wait? If I tell you, stand at this point, a bus is gonna come get you, there's a hurricane happening right now, but trust me, you best be somewhere that they trust or else why? Yeah. Do they and so uh-huh. there's a lot of trust and support and communication that happens in the buildup of hurricane season that hasn't always existed. And yeah. I think New Orleans does a really good job of listening to those lessons learned. And this past hurricane was a great example of that. A yeah. great example of people actually being prepared. People having... Enough supplies and grocery stores are still pretty scarce,
0: to be mm-hmm. honest.
1: But having, for example, apps on your phone that can walk, work like walkie-talkie, mm-hmm. so that people can communicate, we're able to evacuate. So it's it's getting better, but it's still, and it's only going to get worse with mm-hmm. all of our wonderful years to come with climate wars, etc yeah, but yeah. It's a step in the right direction, but it also makes me wonder. You know, if the shoe is on the other foot, I'm about to go through one of my first snowstorm seasons and I don't know how many years and I'm terrified. And the idea that people are like, Oh yeah, if it's snowing, you can still drive. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you have ice falling from the sky that's <laughs> trying to crash your car. Why would you do that? So oh. it's really about who you are and your experience yeah. and respect. I'd rather kayak through a hurricane, very normal in New Orleans, uh-huh. than drive. In Philly, that in and of itself is terrifying. But driving Philly during a snowstorm—get out of here! Oh, it's,
0: it's a piece of cake. It, it it really is. It's 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 nothing. You'll be fine.
1: Um. Yeah, same thing about hurricanes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so you talked about trust, and and this is a good you know a good segue to this point. So you know back to Katrina and this idea of rebuilding trust and whose whose responsibility is it to rebuild? So you've got. People like Mike Brown and FEMA then, you know, hell of a job, Brownie, Uh, you know, but they really failed New Orleans. And, and, you know, so clearly distrust there. And then, you know, whose responsibility is it to rebuild that trust? Because these uh, administrations come and go, um, political administrations, but then you've got people who really sort of need to build that trust, as in saying, when we say there's a bus going to be here on this corner, uh, with water, you have to be here on this corner, right? And this also relates to this idea of around trust, around things like vaccine hesitancy and like safety, right? Like, so it's all related. And and I guess the question for me would be like, you've got this political system of like people telling you one thing and maybe public health people telling you something that might, maybe is aligned and maybe not. Um, and building this like concordance between the two uh, especially in New Orleans, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, so things like trust, it, trust around, you know, is the bus going to show up and get me to Baton Rouge versus like, should I take this vaccine for COVID? Do you see an underlying similarity among, the, among those decisions?
1: 100%,
0: 100%.
1: Trust is really hard because trust is something that you spend years building and it takes one second to lose. -hmm. And because of that, you have to approach it delicately, but also with full force. And I think that this COVID pandemic has been a really good lesson in organizations and people reflecting on assumptions about Mm -hmm. trust. So, this goes across the public health courses I teach. I always say, Connect with your audience, connect with your communities. And that's the huge incentive. And one of the things changing, whether it is hurricane preparedness, what organizations, what local community-led organizations are part of the response? Mm Because you're more likely to trust them than me, right? If I come knock on your door and you've never seen me before, you shouldn't trust me. That's literally stranger danger. We are taught Mm -hmm. that as a child. You should not listen to me. Mm -hmm. But it's the same idea with communication. And communication is really, it's really, really personal and deeply intimate. And we don't like to think of it that way, but that's the honesty of it. And to say, here's what you need to know, it is really condescending to assume that people aren't going to follow-up questions and shouldn't, and to just take what you're saying. And so a lot of the work, whether it was in New Orleans in the beginning of the pandemic, was just talking in churches, going in and being like, give me all your questions. That's a really good question. Or sharing experiences. Both my sisters were pregnant same time during the pandemic and being able to say, I understand my sisters are pregnant. I actually advocate for them to get the vaccine. Do you want to hear my reasoning? That's a way better conversation to have with people than to scare them into a decision to tell them like children, people want to be treated like people and finding the way to do that is how you start to build trust and understanding mm-hmm. sometimes people don't want to hear the message from you. That's yeah. fine. Let's figure out who you trust. And mm. how many of us were asked that, right? So a big part of the work that I do with WHO or with you know, work in communities is asking the question, who do you want to get health information from? Who do you trust? Why? What about the information do you like? Do you not like? That component of evaluation is really important because mm-hmm. assumptions, they're antiquated and they're really condescending. And we need to step away from that and acknowledge that whether you like it or not, human health is global health and we're mm-hmm. all in this together and every decision we make related to our health is going to impact one another. Mm-hmm. And so we need to start talking to people, with people, about health instead of just barking orders at them and assuming follow because that's unnatural and it's not fair and it places too much assumed trust in organizations and politics and leaders that it it's not there that's Mm -hmm. not where the trust is here in 2021.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah this it's a it's you raise a great point and I want to follow up on this a little bit so I had I was having a discussion the other day about about basically this sort of this this idea of if you if you inform people using science and you have enough of an evidence scientific evidence base, ultimately that will trickle down to to influencing policy in Congress for things like Medicare funding for brain injury or something like that. That was the art we were talking about brain injury, and why there wasn't more resources available. Uh, and the person was arguing, "Yeah, we just need a better evidence base." And I, my point was, well, there's a lot that people don't listen to, and you could have a great evidence base, scientific evidence base, and it's certainly necessary, but, you know, how often do you, do you, when you're, you think of people before Congress, does, does that really influence, right? So my, I guess my question for you as a public health practitioner around something during a pandemic, you, we see a lot of these sort of People throwing up persuasion techniques, right? You've written about this, like scare tactics, or you know, appealing, uh, you know, appealing to, you know, the better na- angels of our nature, right? You, you, you know, the common good uh, scare you, and then and people seem to like cycle through these, right? There's like they like will scare you, and if that doesn't work, we'll appeal to you, we'll beg, we'll give you money. <laughs> And basically my I guess my question is as a, as a field, maybe this is just at the government level, but why haven't the people been better at sort of embracing more of like the psychology of persuasion, right, for like targeted persuasion what we know at least from neuroscience, about like how you change someone's mind?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question mm-hmm. um. I don't know if this is the nicest answer, but I think it's an honest answer. Laziness, I think is a big part of it because mm-hmm. in health communication, we call this audience segmentation mm-hmm. and personas, right? Figuring out exactly who this person is, taking the time to get that data, mm-hmm. talking with people to understand the drivers of their behavior. That mm-hmm. takes a lot of time and money and research and on the ground effort. And to do that, it takes a lot. but We know that once you know who your audience is, you have a way better shot at actually communicating the right things to them, right? Is it better to send a generic message to the country and hope 10 people get vaccinated or to take the time to talk to 20 people in a room, understand their decision-making drivers, and then explain? Yeah you know, it, it's, it's a lot of effort. I recognize that. And it takes a lot of resources. And to be honest, not everywhere in the world has the resources, to, the money, the personnel, etc. to do that. So that is a huge limitation and mm-hmm. structural limitation. But also, this bottom up approach is fairly new, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have gone through this top down, We tell you what to do, you do it approach in health Mm -hmm. for such a long period of time that this is really a new age idea of Mm -hmm. actually bottom up works better and communities have more value. And we need to create sustainable change and invest Mm -hmm. in the community because that's the only way to actually improve a collective health. So it's it's really really interesting i mean fee, so fear appeals right this idea that i can scare you into doing a behavior they're so harmful they're so mm-hmm. harmful and we know so i always use this example the sarah mclaughlin commercial where oh, it's the yeah, yeah. The ASPCA, no, the, yeah yeah exactly whereas the ASPCA and they have all SBCA, yeah. puppies and we all change the channel We don't want to look at it. That's not a good message, right? Uh, If you want to ignore it, that's not a good message. mm -hmm. I saw, and I don't know if this is real or not, but I guess a funeral home was saying, don't get vaccinated. It's good for business. That's not, that's taking away all of the serious mortality that we've had in Mm -hmm. the nation, you know? So it's not, no matter what approach you're trying to use, it's going to stigmatize people. It's going to take away the actual trauma that we've collectively gone through and it's not gonna persuade. And taking the time to figure out how to persuade you, it takes time, it takes effort and energy, but we know it works.
0: So what's the, you know, what's the cost benefit of if if you found something really weird and counterintuitive that would persuade you? And I'm thinking of this like, I was talking to, again, like a, a decision neuroscientist around it was around climate change denial and like how hard it was to change people's minds and they had done these focus groups on a lot of people who were who were arguing that climate change wasn't real and it was like they were like okay I tried to persuade you with science tried to persuade you with money all these things like that public health people do and then they found that like a common a uh, common factor, a uh, personality trait, was uh, a a very very high uh, level of disgust. Like they would they would feel really really disgusted when they would see like birds soaked in oil. Um, and so what they were had sort of like the next step was like, do we do you know do we do ad campaigns like appealing to science right and showing like this is changing, this is the world's changing, and this is how we know it. let so here's here's a graph of carbon dioxide going up. Or just do we show lots of you know, dead birds with oil all over them and, and you know, appeal to disgust, which is this visceral reaction that they have, and maybe they'll change their behavior. So what yeah. do you think of that? Like, you know, and this gets to this question I put up earlier with, like, does the end justify the means, right? If it changes the behavior, and it may be like, could be this thing like it changes behavior like today and then doesn't have any, it doesn't stick, right? Which is what you were saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think it's interesting. It's never either or. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. I think oftentimes people are saying, we have to respond. We have one message. Who is your audience? Tell Mm -hmm. me who your audience is, and then I can tell you what to do. It's whatever is going to persuade the audience, and then you move on to the next audience, and then you move on to the next audience. So you can think of it like the diffusion of innovation bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that you have innovators, and then the early adopters, and You know, people are naturally going to go in that motion. Are you focusing on the people who are slowest to change? Why are they slowest to change? And then break it down. Mm -hmm. Also, you can have concurrent conversations. And that's hard to do. None of this is simple. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of those things where you could say, you know, having billboards that are based on the Dove. Is it Dove? Or is it, it's one of the dial soap maybe where they are oh, like yeah. uh-huh. ducks or penguins, huh? or whatever, right? Like, sure. Have the oil, have that, mm-hmm. have something to raise awareness, right? Quick response. But also, are you asking people what source of information they would talk to, right? A yeah. big pitch in health, public health communication right now is mean people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Cosmopolitan magazine asked me to do an interview about COVID. And I was like, that's really okay. but. If that's a palatable way for people to talk about their fears about infertility and COVID, I'll meet you there.
0: Yeah, no yeah, problem, yeah.
1: You know, and so it's it's being able, we should be flexible in our messaging. We need uh-huh. to start assuming our audiences will be flexible with what we give them. Yeah. So I would say it's not either or. And as soon as you give an either or, you're automatically alienating the other party.
0: yeah. Well, what do you think now with the role of like? I guess I don't know if I would call it sympathy or empathy. Seems to be waning, right? This idea of like almost people celebrating people who are not vaccinated, uh, then getting sick, right? Of being like, this is your fault, and you know, too bad. Um, as opposed to like you know, early on there was more of a communal like, we've got to get through this together, and now it's them against us. And and can you talk a little bit about that, like how that is either an impediment or you know, is it a consequence of that stuff we were doing with scaring, right? That, you know, came along. I don't know, like, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: It's hard, it's definitely hard. I think the first part is recognizing almost a pandemic as a living being, right? Uh-huh. In infancy, in its very beginning, it was easier, it was palatable, we didn't have an idea. I mean, some of us said. we were like, yeah, this will be a couple of years. Yeah. But the most people, not thinking they thought oh six weeks paid vacation at home this is great that's a totally different situation than year two i've Um, lost family members mm -hmm. i've lost my sense of self we've gone through like actually in our brains you know this we've gone through collective trauma that has changed our wiring in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. so things are not as palatable as they were before but also our ability to respond to the world around us has also changed. So I guess a fancy way of saying our patience is a lot shorter for a lot Uh of actual scientific reasons, but also we are different people than we were two years ago and that's hard. And a lot of us have gone through two years of personal warfare, right? Going through all of this. And so to go through all of that mentally, emotionally, physically, et cetera, and to still not see the world as you think it should be after that sacrifice is really, really hard. And I think that's a lot of the friction that we're seeing, but also the politicalization did yeah. not do it good. And uh-huh. I'm not necessarily saying the politicalization is the same as a fear appeal campaign, but they're really similar, right? Yeah. Like you do this or else you are that, Yeah. and that mentality is really alienating. And it does create Um, sides, which is really, really hard. Because once sides are created, it's hard to come back to a collective.
0: Yeah. Can you think, so I'm thinking of like, you know, back to New Orleans and hurricanes, like the person I would trust if someone came to my door would be like the Red Cross. And that seems like it's really resisted politicalization. You know, like, I don't know, it just seems like an organization that people have inherent trust in and really is not super as politicized as, I don't know, maybe FEMA or it's almost loaded with things like the CDC, right? That got very, very political. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you, do you see now that like, you know that this is dragging on and that people have really taken sides and it is like somewhat less communal and more like them against us and the sympathy empathy is sort of waning. Do you feel like the messaging like, I guess, like, one, I guess, do you feel like the government, governments around the world maybe, and then us also, as part of that, ha- how has the messaging at the government level been? Like, what have been the biggest mistakes um, and the biggest wins, do you think?
1: Well, I think uh, mistakes at the government level, we could do a series of five podcast specials. Just in, mes- just in messaging, <laughs> I right? I know, I know, I know. Uh-huh. I get, but... Um, the foundation is very different around the world, right? So in the U.S., we have this individualistic identity. And that mm-hmm. makes things like collective health really, really hard. Yeah, so that's yes. very different scenario than in a lot of um, Southeast Asian countries, for example, where collective unity is an idea. Also, mm-hmm. behaviors started in different positions, right? In China and Japan, it's very common to wear a mask if you're not feeling well because mm-hmm. it's considered the hygienic white thing to do. Whereas here, wearing a mask is still a hot topic button. So there are very, very unique contexts where messaging has rolled out. But I think some of the best communication has come from acknowledging when you've messed up and Mm -hmm. are ready to move forward. So if a campaign's not working or if the messaging isn't hitting the way it's supposed to, ditch it and move on to the next one. So you we're seeing success in areas where they're constantly reinvigorating and reassessing. Did you mm-hmm. like the communication? Where did it come from? How can we change it, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing is in areas where you have door-to-door communication, where you have this idea of conversations about health as opposed to a top-down approach, we are seeing more success. Oh. And that makes sense because a lot of hesitancy is hesitancy. It's mm-hmm. not... Complete. I don't want to engage at all, and yeah. that's one thing where I would say the messaging is really messed up in a lot uh-huh. of places because the the identity of an anti-vax, mm-hmm. very fair identity for a lot of people who self-identify as anti-vax. But what mm-hmm. about all the people who are just vaccine hesitant?
0: Uh-huh.
1: I'll be honest, the entire world was vaccine hesitant before you know we actually had one, and so mm-hmm. coming at it from that and saying we all have gone through this thought process. Let me know where you're at with this. Let's talk through what's holding you back, what's not, what would change your mind. Mm -hmm. You're going to have more success. And so having those conversations can feel almost um, taboo a little bit in the US and really hard. I mean, people are losing friends and family over a lot of this and it's really hard to do and taking emotion Mm -hmm. out of COVID communication is really hard to do. But yeah. we know that conversations and conversation-based communication always work. Narratives mm-hmm. work. Hearing from someone who had COVID likely to work. Hearing, mm-hmm. having someone say, I want to hear out what your thoughts are. And then mm-hmm. going forward. It's it's really hard to do and it doesn't happen enough.
0: Yeah.
1: Communication without emotion where you're honestly there for Q&A. We need more of that. And we're, we don't have that here in the US. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Yeah, well, we've got like three more minutes. Is there any new direction or anything exciting that you, uh, else that you want to talk about? This has been a fantastic conversation. I have learned a lot. It's it's been great. Any, anything new coming down the pike or anything you're initiating in Philadelphia now that you're at Temple? Oh my goodness.
1: Um, Well, first of all, this is super fun. I can talk about infectious diseases for forever. So Uh this is a really, really fun thing to do. Um, now that I'm in Philadelphia, I have so many projects I want to get into. I have dreams of studying like brucellosis and wild boar populations, or, you know, looking at outbreaks of tick borne diseases, ah, you know, normal things, trying to get mm-hmm. a feel for the land. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. If yeah. anyone gets a crazy infectious disease, let me know. I'd love to take a vial of blood and See where
0: it goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we used to have a parrot and uh we all got salmonella from it. So I think that's the closest I've come to a, um, you know, a, a exotic tropical disease. But um, you know, it can happen. This parrot. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. Um uh it has been a pleasure and uh we'll see you out there in the world. Have been listening to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University. If you are interested in learning more about our academic programs and scholarship, or providing financial support to Common Voice, our programs or students, please visit us at www.cph.temple.edu.